This episode of the Gundog Notebook Podcast is brought to you live from the World Class Hunting Expo in Pittsburgh, Kansas. The Gundog Notebook Podcast is presented to you by OnX Hunt, crafted to be the number one digital mapping resource for hunters, anglers, and landowners. Download the OnX Hunt app from your phone's app store today and check out onyxmaps.com for more inside Onyx. I also want to bring to you Garmin. Build a better dog with devices for tracking and training from obedience to hunting and limiting nuisance barking. Get exactly what you need to make a life with your hunting buddy that much better. Go check out the Garmin Pro 550 Plus. That's what we're using on this side of town. And uh, get yourself ready for the hunting season coming up. Don't have your dog running all out there crazy. Get them well broken in collar condition. That's what we are working on now. Go check them out right now at Garmin.com. The Gun Dog Notebook is also brought to you by Dakota 283 Kennels. Check out the new updated price drops on Dakota283Kennels.com. Use the promo code TGDN10 for 10% off at checkout. Also presented to you by Lion Country Supply, the Gun Dog World's premium gun dog supplier. Check them out now. All right, guys, we are back. Here it is once again on the mic, this time with three historic figures in the bird dog world. I want to say how privileged I am in a number of ways, namely to be able to get him even the slightest bit of time to sit down with Farrell Miller, Harold Ray, and my good friend, Bud Moore. I'm blessed that Bud would even acknowledge little old me as such a friend, and I'm also just honored to have been extended the invite to work dogs down in Waynesboro with Harold Ray at Smith Setters um, and chat with Maurice Lindley and get an invite to come up to uh, South Carolina to work dogs with him. Um, these are just opportunities that you just should not take lightly and I definitely won't. So I wanna take them up on that in this podcast episode. You guys are going to hear a whole lot of storytelling and not a lot of training. Um, I just wanted to capture these gentlemen's history. Um, and that was the thing that I think really is most important about speaking with these guys. Um, I just felt that they've contributed, and a lot of people do, obviously, but they've contributed so much to the bird dog world and its foundation. So ladies and gentlemen, this is Harold Ray, Farrell Miller, and Bud Moore on the Gun Dog Notebook Podcast. Here we go. Well, <laughs> thank y'all. I appreciate it, uh, seriously. Um, Bud, thank you for having me out here. So I'm Darrell Smith. I'm coming out here from Atlanta. So I wanted to make the flight out here to get a chance to talk to y'all and just really talk a little bit about history. Um, I'm new in the field trials, new to pointers. Um, been bugging Bud all day uh, for the for the last how many months now, Bud? Six months? or eight. About six or eight. And um, I just feel like you three gentlemen have done a lot for the history of field trialing. So I want to talk. I got a couple of questions for y'all, but. Um, 
just to start, if you don't mind going down the line, talk a little bit about your history, Mr. Miller, your history, if you can summarize it a little bit. And then we got Bud as well. Um, I want to talk about, you know, how you got started and, and what were some of the highlights of your career? Well, I, I can say that, that I, I, I'm a farm boy. Mm-hmm. I grew up on the farm. <clears throat> and and, uh, and and those days when I grew up, uh, we grew everything we eat. You know, 12 of us, you can imagine, took mm-hmm. a lot of food. Well, uh, anything that we boys uh, killed and dressed, mom would cook for us. Right. And in those days, we didn't have electricity. And, and uh, you couldn't keep meat. I mean, the only time we had meat was when uh, the chickens got in the spring mm-hmm. and, and uh, what uh, squirrels, rabbits, or quail, or whatever. Right. And uh, uh, we learned uh, from that. And we grew tobacco, we milked cows, and uh, that's, and my brothers uh, older than me, my brother and brother-in-law was uh, bird hunters and they'd let me follow them. Uh, and then once I got big enough, why, well, well, I went to hunt myself. Yeah. And uh, I, 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 I drove a Volkswagen. I traveled 14 counties, and I drove a Volkswagen because of gas mileage. Right. And I, I drove a Volkswagen down to Grand Junction and rented a horse and saw Regan's White Knight run when he was a derby. He had 17 fines. He he. He made mistakes on the, about half of them, but he was just sailed through that three hours in a way that was unbelievable to okay. me. And and the stud fee was three fifty, and I went trying to figure out how I could get three hundred and fifty dollars to pay the stud fee because I wanted enough dog like him. Yeah. And I, and I, I I got enough money to pay the stud fee, and I bred to him, and that's where all these white dogs come from. Okay, so country. you go back to White Knight. Okay. All right. Wow. Didn't know that. <laughs> Mr. Uh, Mr. Ray, how about yourself? Well, I was born and raised on a dairy farm up in Maryland, Pennsylvania. A fellow named Rodney King, uh, he just raised dogs to sell, advertising every sporting magazine. It was, and he'd come out to a farm one day and asked my dad if he could run dogs uh-huh. on the farm. He said, yeah. I'd just gotten out of the, I'd been, I'd left home pretty early, yeah. and uh, I like 14 then, and I had this skin infection from working in solvent, and, and when this fleet of tractor and trailers come in on the weekend, I'd wash and wax every one of them tractors from Friday night to Monday morning. I never slept. I washed and waxed every one of those tractors. Got five hours a truck for doing it. And uh, so I'd been in the hospital for 30 days. They didn't know what it was or how to cure it or anything. But I was rough to look at. One man said, a friend of mine said, I've never seen a man so rotten and still alive. <laughs> and uh, I had no skin on my chest, back, shoulders, face. Yeah, I was just, uh, I was an open sore. Yeah. <clears throat> well, naturally, well, anyway, Rodney asked me, he was going up to Indiantown Gap, it was an all-age trial, and uh, he was going to breed a dog to a dog Dr. Nitchman had called Magna. 
So I went with him and we always had coon dogs on the place and we'd squirrel hunt and shoot pheasants. We had some quail and watched them feathers. That thing ain't big enough to eat, you know. I thought they were nuts, you yeah. know, right there blowing the whistles and hollering. <clears throat> so anyway, and we farmed some horses. Dad put me up on the hold on to the hames while worked the field, mowed hay or whatever. And so the horse and dog thing was right up my alley. So, and Mr. King asked me on the way back, he said, how would you like to do that? I said, boy, I'd be all right. Yeah. So the next time he went back up to breed the second time, he introduced me to Fred Bevan. And he told me that they would take kids to Canada with them and teach them how to work dogs and what have you. <clears throat> well, I wrote to uh, Mr. Bevan and he answered me back and said that, you know, kids get homesick and he'd rather I wait till the fall and if I still interested to write him. And before Mrs. Bevan died, um, First field trial I ever won was a shooting dog derby at Dye Lane. I won first and second. A fellow John Robertson owned the winner, and they give silver goblets back in. It was no cheap stuff. And he had a dog called Harry and Mama, if I won first with, was a setter. And the funny thing about the setter, he had flagged really bad on his birds, but if the birds left, he would be tired. So in the, they run a the second series between him and Dr. Nitschman's dog. And he was in this pond pointed and Doc's dog come in and, and I call point. He was just really flagging. <laughs> and Doc's dog come in and knocked the bird for the judges got there and the judge got there. He was standing just as pretty as you could please. Yeah. And Mrs. Smith, owned, I mean, Mrs. Bevan owned a second place dog called Southern Fried. Yeah. <clears throat> well, before she died, she called me over there she wanted me to have that second place trophy and she had the original letter that I wrote her. It's like parchment right now, but she gave me that. So I have that original letter with his answer on the back. Wow. So that fall I wrote him and went, went to Georgia in 1958. I was working on another dairy farm. The only uh, job I get, it was $15 for every two weeks. I get in $7.50 a week. So when Mr. Bevin offered me $50 a month, I, I moved up. <laughs> you right I on moved it. up, but they fed me and what have you. And then I worked for him for about to 1964. And <clears throat> I'm very sensitive about my dogs. We was working dogs and he said something about the dog and I flew off and got mad and I told him I quit. Well, there's next morning he didn't think I'd quit, and he said you can't quit. And I said yes, sir, I'll quit. I didn't. I had three dollars in my pocket because yeah. he hadn't paid me for the summer's work or anything. So anyway, uh, <clears throat> went into when I was leaving the yard, he said, "Well, I'll fix it to where you can't get a job nowhere." Well, this red hair kind of has a story behind it, you know. <laughs> So the first thing I thought about, I was going to go work for Phil Brusso. He was not the top man, but I knew I could get along with him and he'd treat me right. And that was important. So anyhow, in the, in the Anthony Wayne Motel in Waynesboro, they had a phone booth. 
And if you put two quarters in it, they would keep coming through. So I had a dollar and quarters. So I called Mr. Smith and he said, are you sure you quit? I said, yes, sir. I was just calling him out of spite, yeah. you know, because he asked, I said, you asked me to call if I ever quit again. And I, he says, well, have you got a, a place to stay? I said, yes, sir, because the motel room in Anthony Wayne was $3 <laughs> for the night. So I got to, and he sent Clarence Scott out uh, next morning and took me out to the place, then flew me to Pittsburgh and it kind of history. Yeah. After that, uh, first dog truck we had, he built it. The horse went in the center, and the dogs had 12 crates, six on each side. The dogs sleep there, and there's a place on each side of the horse where you could store stuff. But when I went to Canada, Sherry slept on one side, and I slept on the other. And I remember pulling out of a gas station. It was 27 cents a gallon. I said, I am not paying 27 cents. It was about 15, 18 cents most of the time back in. And then we got pretty tired because at night, that old truck would be so, uh, front end be so light, you'd just steering all day. And my arms would be throbbing. So I was up in Minnesota, and I was, it was a red roof in by 2 o'clock in the morning. So I went in there to see if we'd get a room. They said, yeah. I said, how much is it? They said, $22. I said, lady, I just want to sleep a few hours. I don't want to buy the place. <laughs> so I went back out, got in the truck, and slept with a horse and went on. But one of the greatest things, one of the things I'm most proud of and accomplishment was when I won all four placements with littermates in the New England fraternity. Then I won three of the four placements with the same letter in the quail fraternity. And I'd, if the other dog had pointed the birds, I'd won all four placements really? again. Was it with setters too? That was setters <laughs> and littermates. And when you start, that's probably something that may not get repeated. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the things. So, and, and I've been proud. I worked for a great man. Mr. Smith knew how to work people. He would never, if you in a workout, would ever say anything to you. If it's something he didn't disagree with or something, there are two ladies said, how are you doing today? Yeah. Uh, well, when you get time sometimes, they stop by the house. He said, we hadn't visited in a while. Yeah. And we said, how's things going? Well, you know, good morning. He'd get kind of feel things. He said, the other day you was working copper. He said, I didn't quite understand why you got on her. Well, yeah. what it is, you're not mad. If it said something like that, I probably flew back at it. Yeah. And then it would have gotten... It gave, it gave me a chance to explain what I did, or if I was in the wrong, it brought it to my attention without ever getting in the wrong. And he was, a, he was just a great man. I was never pressured. To for any field trial, wanted to get a, rid of a dog. He never argued the point. I would some of the reasons some good dogs I sold. One was a dog called Flair. She won 15 championships. The other was Smokers Bobby. She won 14. And I said, Mr. Smith, I can win with these dogs, but I don't want to breed to either one of them. 
they took one all them championship and they never produced a puppy that won even a puppy state. And that's where you got to quit kidding yourself. It's hard to be straight with yourself. I quit. Farrell can relate. I quit five dogs. I don't do things just out of thinking it might work. I want facts. I quit five dogs that most trainers would have never quit one summer. I took a complete record of all my dogs. Did wrote down how long I worked him, what he did, every workout entire summer. When I finished that summer, I went over my notes. And if he hadn't won a field trial that summer, I never run him again. What makes me think I'm going to do something at the field trial I can't do in a workout? And I know you really elaborated on that, the practice of thinking do it at home. I've been to trials and what I don't watch. Matter of fact, this weekend is the first time I've watched Doug run dogs in a long since he actually started. Reason being, he's not going to do it like I do it, and I don't want to say nothing to him. But I'm going to tell you. You couldn't have been no prouder than I was watching him. Yeah. <laughs> he was thinking like I was thinking. We were doing, we was on the same page. And God, I left there proud. Okay. 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 And that just about where I'm at. All right. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. So I'm going to go to Mr. Moore and then I got a couple more because I don't want to hold up too much of y'all. Here you go. Uh, the notes and writing it down and going back. I've kept a journal from the first quail I ever killed. And I stress in all of my seminars, if it's not on paper, it did not happen. Because I want the the new generation of people to have a plan for success. So I want them to write down where are they going with this dog? Where are they now? How are we going to get to where we want to go with this dog? with it uh and we all grew up in a time when you had to know the value of a dollar uh, i was raised on my grandfather's indian allotment farm there were seven adults and four children lived in grandfather's house and we learned to respect our elders and we learned to pray and us children would dry the dishes every night and mother and grandmother would wash and we learned our bible verses i will never forget the beatitudes because i got kind of slap happy one night and rhymed the beatitudes and my mother hit me upside the head with a six inch cast iron skillet and cold cocked me you do not make fun of the lord's word but my grandfather had bird dogs and it did not bother him to spend a lot of money to buy a class bird dog. Now he didn't have a lot of dogs, but he always had good dogs. And so I grew up knowing the value of a good dog. Now I was unfortunate in that my father uh, and I disagreed mightily about 
my upbringing, so to speak. And uh, so I left home at 15. And one of my uncles was a man named Dan Huddleston, who was big in the Britney world. And he and Aunt Evelyn never had any children. He had a used car lot in Oklahoma City, and he let it be known that there was always a bed and a washing machine to wash my clothes and a hot meal at their house for me. Uh, and in the early 60s, when I was footloose and fancy free and rodeoing an awful lot and working odd jobs and day jobs, to earn a dollar, to go down the road a little bit more, buying that 18, 19 cent a gallon gasoline. And uh, every filling station in the little country towns, you could go in and buy thick cut sliced bologna and a tube of crackers, and they were a nickel each. So for 10 cents, you could buy enough bologna and crackers that you had three square meals. And they were square meals because the little crackers were square. But in 1964, my Uncle Dan Huddleston and I were partners in a Britney Spaniel called Bill's Buddy Boy. And he won the U.S. Open for Britney Spaniels. And that was the first championship bird dog I was ever involved with. And uh, I, I ran a lot of Britneys and, and uh, was very successful with the Britneys. But in 1969, I was in Inola, Oklahoma. When Dr. Stormy Mack went through those grounds up there and blistered the prairie and had three great finds. And that was the last Brittany I ever owned. <laughs> now, I made a terrible mistake. I made the mistake of going to Mr. John Criswell to get my first pointers. And of course, he was standing a Ramblin' Rebel and Rebel and Ramblin' Rebel Dan and those dogs. So I did not get a white dog. I got a lot of color in my dogs. Yeah. And they ran an awful lot, but they didn't point very many birds. Uh, it took me a long time to get dogs that ran and found and pointed some birds. And then about four years ago, I was privileged to judge a derby stake where... Miller's speed dial was turned loose. And he ran through that country right and pointed a covey of birds and looked right on it. And I put him up first in that derby stake. And uh, as I said this morning in my seminar, I saw the light. And I ended up with a daughter of speed dial out of a sister to Game Maker. And uh, then I ended up with a, a couple of more white dogs and uh, my friend in South Carolina called me two years ago and said, Bud, I have a litter of five puppies. There's one female and four males. And I think you really need this female. She is classy. And he said, I sent you a, a video of her. Well, she was just six weeks old and uh, his wife was walking the puppies 
And so here's a picture, about three minutes of video on a flip phone, not even an iPhone, a flip phone of a six-week-old puppy walking in grass taller than she was. And uh, so I, I called him and I said, uh, well, how much do you want for it? And he said, same as, as I charged you for the last puppy. And I said, how are we going to get her here? And he said, I don't know. And I said, are you going to Mr. Farrell's puppy program? And he said, yes, I am. And I said, when are you leaving? And he told me, and I said, would you leave a day early? And he said, why? And I said, because that would make that puppy being weaned and separated on the 49th day. And I want that puppy weaned and separated on the 49th day because that's when the seeing eye dog people say to separate them. And he did. And he took the, pup the puppy to Mr. Farrell's program. And uh, it was there a couple of days. And he gave the puppy to Ike. And Ike took the puppy to West Tennessee. And a young man I'd been mentoring had gone to Blake Kukars to take Blake two stud fee puppies. So he drove the half mile down to Ike's house and picked up the puppy then and brought her home to my wife and uh, walked in the front door. And she was two days shy of being eight weeks old. And uh, my wife said, this looks like Molly to me. And uh, so we had had Molly about an hour and a half when my wife said, come on, we're going to the pigeon coop. And so we took Molly, two days shy of eight weeks old, to the pigeon coop. And we held her little feet up there, and the pigeons were all on the sun and loft cooing, and she liked to make them fly. And that was the start of Molly falling in love with birds and how we got her interested in birds. And the rest is all history now. You know, Molly won the Montana Shooting Dog Derby this, and then she went from there up to the All-American and won the All-American Shooting Dog Derby. We've had her in three derbies this fall. She's won them all three. So, uh, But the thread runs so common of, of our background, our being raised, our writing things down, and keeping the records of all of this, and the fact that, you know, you're a setter man, and he's the father of the white dogs, and I finally ended up being successful, really successful with a white dog. Okay. All right. So in light of all of that, now, one thing that I do enjoy about all of y'all's personality is y'all all have different ideologies, right? Training-wise, y'all do different things. You run different dogs. But what are you guys also compete against each other and probably have at, at some point in time? No, you haven't. Okay, so, all right, so that leads me into my question. What, what are some of the major distinctions for you guys between all age and shooting dog? Like, what are some of the things that differentiate those circuits, especially for new guys coming in that are trying to fall into the field travel? <laughs> My personal opinion about the top shooting dog and the top all lays dog in the side is preparation. Okay. You can prepare that dog if he's a good one, and you can, I believe, could win both trials. When you get into the all age, some of your three hour trials you're going to have to get into a little bit different dog, but the average 
hour trial, you can only run so much. I, my background started with all these dogs. So as we're talking about old cash master at the national, that's been mine. The fur was right. I fought the dog, making these big swings and turned them and what have you. <clears throat> but I know some of my top dogs, uh, I have to fight them do things like rode them an hour, lay them up an hour, right. or uh, do things. They would have won. Well, Bill Hunt made the statement one time. He watched Performer run at Missouri. And years later, he said, you know, if you had had old Earl, Reverend Wrangler, and I'd had Tony, the Performer, he said we'd have still won just as much. Yeah. yeah. So, I, okay. Uh, I agree with Harold. Uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, a good dog, uh, he's got to grab that edge and, and go down it and hunt the birdie spots. And the, the, the only dog might go a little further and uh, be a little more independent. And uh, the scout can do a little more in the all eights than he can in the shooting dog. He can grab him and take him on around for the shooting dog people sometimes. They, they want you to stay in the gallery unless you go to a particular point and see if the dog's on point. So you want to walk up on that dog? Right. Right. Okay. Okay. The only thing I'd just like to add on on uh, what Mr. Farrell and I said, I could prepare for the all-age trial and push him just as far, but then I'd have to quit the shooting dog because he'd been all-age dog again. Yeah. And, and that's why Mr. Smith, they... Well, why don't you run him in the all age trial? He says, he says you have to decide what you're going to do in life and do that. Stick to it. Okay. Dave Brooks tries to avoid No, you can't. Dave Brooks. Yeah. When you're, when you try to do both with the same dog, you get in a confused situation. The dog gets confused, and then when you want to run the shooting dog stake, then you go to all day stake, then you'll be out there riding further, helping the dog get that extra 100 yards that your dog's going to do on his own. So you really need to not switch them. Okay. All right. So after Mr. Ray gave his recollection, um, I transitioned over to Mr. Bud Moore to talk about his experiences running up with uh, in the same brace as Farrell Miller. Right before he uh, started talking, we had a bit of a microphone uh, technical difficulty. So he picks up um, at the part in his story where he and Farrell are running dogs together um, in the same trial, brace together, uh, and Bud's dog is not cooperating. And so Bud talks about some of the, the competition and the, the sportsman-like things that they would do for each other. There you go. I said, Mr. Farrell, I'm going to pick my dog up. But when you go over this hill, there's an old home place down there. There'll be a great big pear tree. And I said, there's always been a covey of quail down in that creek bottom behind that old home place. 
And I picked my dog up, and Mr. Farrell took his dog and went over the hill and pointed to Covey Quails and won an amateur derby championship. Uh-huh. <laughs> Not Bud. Bud Daughter. Yep. He was judging. Yep. Okay. Sure was. Now, you said the dog wasn't listening, wasn't doing anything. What did you go back afterwards and, and, and work on? After that trial, when I got her home, I put her in the kennel, and sure enough, within ten days, she came into season. And you can't work on a dog like that because you cannot get into a dog's mind, especially a female that's coming into season. That is so hormonally controlled that you can have the best female in the world, and that's why a lot of people won't run females because when they do come in season. Some of them will quit you. Some of them just go crazy. And that rare one, it doesn't bother them a bit. But for the most part, females, when they come in season, uh, just will not do right. So, uh, and I like to, personally, I like to run females. I think females are uh, a little more responsive. And of course, I like to run young dogs. And I think females is on the younger set, the puppies and the derbies are more responsive than, than their brothers are. Um, one of my last things, and, and I'll kind of wrap everything up. Um, Mr. Miller, you talked about going when you were working, when you were first starting out, you visited a bunch of camps, training camps up north and things like that, right? And you mentioned there was a lot of things that you saw, and I don't want to get into the who, but you mentioned there was a lot of things that you saw that you didn't like. What were some of the things that all three of you guys throughout your y'all's histories, what were some of the things that y'all didn't like and how did you go about improving on it? You remember what you remember what Harold said about heredity? Mm -hmm. He said, if you see a puppy and he's low tail, now you can't do nothing about that. Yeah. If you see a puppy trailing birds on the ground, and don't get his head up. You can't do nothing about that. That's heredity. Right. And some of the things that are heredity, uh, I don't spend my time with them. I know Harold, and I know he and Mr. Smith did an excellent job of, of cutting through those setters and picking the best ones because they had the best in the country. Right. Okay. Okay. About yourself. <clears throat> Talking about what you, you learn from watching somebody. I've learned more by seeing wrong than I have by seeing good. I remember, and it was braced with Riggins White Knight, all oh, the first year he went to Canada. He, uh, Riggins White Knight, first year, all his dog. Braced with a trainer named Bob Huffman. Mr. Hull would get out in front of us and run the dog, and Mr. Huffman would stay about 100 yards parallel to left the hard. And I didn't know anything about field trials, but I know I didn't like that. I couldn't see, I wanted to see his dogs, and that's what brought my attention. The dog was running in front of him over there. And I know, and, and there's these kind of things, when you see something that catches your attention, that you don't like or that you like. On the other hand, <clears throat> Mr. John Gates, 
when I watched him run a dog, I was mesmerized. He had a nice looking horse. He dressed nice. When he pointed the dog out, he was smooth. Everything was so smooth about it that uh, it just flowed. And that stuck in my mind all my life was watching John Gates run a dog on the prairie up there. Whether he was winning with it or wasn't, wasn't it, everything about his operation flowed. It was smooth. There wasn't nothing that just, I don't like that. Turning the horse sideways most of the time. Absolutely. I, 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 gotta, I don't know whether you want this story on, yeah, on here or not. But everybody, all the handlers, the old age circuit, hated to be drawn with Fred Bell. Uh -huh. His philosophy, and some of the old trainers, was you had to eliminate your brace mate. And they didn't really care how they did it. We were braced with a dog of Mr. John's, a first-year dog called War Exterminator, and we was running Mike's home again. Well, both dogs were lost. It was like a triangle. I'd come back to the gallery. Fred was over here, and Mr. John was over here, and it was a perfect triangle. Mr. John, like I said, turned broadside, that big hat held it up there, and uh, he looked as big as the Empire State Building over just far as you could see. Well, we all started riding toward Mr. John. Well, what Fred would do, and a couple of other trainers would do at that time, they'd come flying right in the bushes and run through there like they didn't hear you or something. Here come Fred, and we all got there at the same time. And just before Fred run in the bushes, Mr. John says, it's your dog, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, okay. So he, he was, you know, if he'd been a fire, been, Mr. John sat on the tailgate of that truck and he had prostate cancer, told me story after story after yeah. story. Okay. He would tell me one about a judge he couldn't win on. Really? He said, how no matter what I did, don't you see? He had ended any, every sentence yeah. with don't you see. Yeah. And he said, no matter what I did, I couldn't win. Him. He just didn't like him? He said, I don't know what the problem was, but he said one day at a field trial, and I don't remember Judge's name, but he come, he said, I went to him. He said, Mr. So-and-so said, I've got this dog. He's got this problem, and I can't fix it. Yeah. He says, you have any idea what I might do to fix that dog? And that boy, he perked up, and he went to rattling off and told Mr. John what to do with that dog. He said, next time I seen him, he said, I went to said, I just want to thank you. He said, you remember me asking you about what to do with that dog? He said, I did it, and I want you to know that fixed it. John said, I've never run a dog on him again that I didn't play something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. But he knew how to read so people. He didn't find it. Yeah. He, he beat you with his head. Really? He'd think ahead of you. Trying to, trying to figure you out. I tell you so many stories. Uh, God, he was running tech, running uh, medallion in the Georgia Championship. 
Micronesia is if I was in that guy watching that I didn't miss nothing. I can tell you every step today for me. Medallion pointed to Covey Birds. He was original name was Gambler's Eyes. John got him to change his name. And he couldn't flush the birds. And when Mr. John sent him on, the dog just took off the left and took off. Nobody said nothing, anything. Peck had that dog stop, dragged him right back up there. John called him there, dog went on in there and pointed the bird. Yeah. Well, they'd run a second series because he didn't like that situation. And uh, years later, I was talking to Mr. John about that. He said, yes, yeah. he he'd blink a relocation. He said he wouldn't relocate. He said Peck knew it. He said he brought it, got, got him in there. Yeah. But it was so smooth even that. It wasn't nobody hollering. He didn't holler. Peck was just on that horse right now. Got that. Dog didn't get much closer than here to where. Uh, yeah. So he do a whole lot of talking, a whole lot just. He just, exactly. But if you was at the field trial, I went to the Continental yeah. one time. We'd had a dog. We got runner up in the Georgia Derby. Mr. Herman had won it. Well, Mr. George Clark was supposed to help me and furnish me a horse when I got down there. Yeah. Come time to run, Mr. George Clark said his horse was tired and he couldn't go and didn't have a horse. John had the horse and the scout and they turned the dog loose without asking. Really? Yeah. Okay. 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 Wow. So y'all just got stories. So I guess one of those things. You saw what you liked, what you didn't like. So you guys had trainers that just really motivated you. So for you, it was, I guess, your the the number one trainer for you that stuck out for you before your time. John, John, John Gates. Uh huh. John Rex. So that John Rex for you too, Mister Mister. Yeah, John Rex is his dad. Okay. John's his dad of John Rex. This okay. John Rex come along later. Uh, I didn't. I, I saw John S. Gates run uh, Safari down uh, at the Invitational, uh, and they were smooth. I saw Clyde Roy Morton. He, okay. he I never said, seen Clyde. I, I, I saw Clyde Roy in Canada, and uh, he was smooth. Yeah. And, and so you know, every one of them. Hall was organized at that time. Yeah. John Rex was organized at that time, and they stood out. Okay. I mean, one of the stories I can tell about John Rex, he took over his dad's string by the time I went to working for Mr. Smith. John Rex didn't like his daddy's type dog. His daddy had a dog that was all in there big time and him and Peck can get around. John Rex really liked a handier dog that he could work with a little flush. Yeah, and that was a very, every time I seen Safari in Canada, I said she was through. She wasn't a prairie dog. But you come down south, you couldn't beat her. She'd run where you could see her, point stand back off and birds, you'd never lose her. Okay. And she was always, uh, uh, always in there. But John Rex was telling me I was helping marshal Georgia championship one year. And John Rex was off to the left. And they asked me to go over. I told him, he said, yeah. I said, I know. He said, David rode up Covey Birds over there this morning. He said, he called point in a minute. He no sooner said that than David called point. And he was telling me later, he said, you know, Harold, this was kind of sitting around talking. A lot of these guys got a lot better dogs than I got. They said they beat themselves. 
Really? So again, like you always say, but more handler error than anything, letting the dog do his, okay. So that goes back all the way back then too. Okay, all right. You, I, sir. When I first went north as a teenager, I was enhanced with the Brittany world and I went to Lee Holman's camp. And of course, Jimmy Holman was just a little bit younger than I, but not much. And Jimmy Holman and John Rex were the best of buddies. And when I came along, I was kind of the odd man in the group. But we all three had one thing in common. We loved to fish. And there wasn't anything Captain John hated worse than that love of fishing. So the three of us would sneak around to go fish. And we... At John Rex would just pray that daddy wouldn't catch us fishing. And uh, one night we were, it was dark, and we had come back in and still had chores to do. And uh, we all went our separate ways to do our chores. And, of course, taking care of, the, of you know, each one of us had a, a string of dogs that was ours to take care of, feed and clean up after and everything like that. And this was way before we had kennels up there, you know. So cleaning up after the dog was really a chore back then. But we all did that, and we thought we had gotten away with having spent about three hours that afternoon fishing. And we had our fishing poles stashed. Well, it was about three or four days later, we decided we'd sneak off and go fishing again. So we went and dug our fishing poles up out of the stash where we had them, and every pole was broke in half. Needless to say, nobody had to ask who did what or why. And that ended our fishing for the summer because none of us could afford to go buy a fishing pole. <laughs> wow. So it seems like the, I want to sum it all up, right? A lot of y'all's upbringing influenced the way that y'all raised your dogs, which I think is important. It seems like my generation, the guys that's coming up with, we've got we've got a lot of different resources. You got the internet, you've got social media this, social media that, right? But it seems like you guys were much more hands-on because of the lessons that you guys got from your families. You know, Mr. Miller, you opened up your seminar talking about, you know, a love of God and the lessons that your fathers taught you and so on and so forth and your upbringing. Um, it just seems like y'all worked really hard. And I wanted to take that lesson, you know, and get a couple of stories from you guys um, and hopefully apply that to my own training. You know, I um, I look at a lot of what y'all were doing back in the day read a lot of American field and Hodge Walt when he was writing stuff and all of that stuff. Um, and it just seems like y'all, it came from a deeper place is what I'm trying to say. It seemed like it came from a much deeper place. Um, so I just wanted to, you know, get that on air, talk to you and, and dig into y'all's backgrounds. We did what we did because we loved the animal we were working with and we loved the end result. So what do you think now, is different now? All of, all of the three of us are very, very competitive, but winning wasn't the reason we got into this. 
we got into it because we came from a rural background. We loved the animals and we loved the end result of it. Winning was a blessing. Okay. That was the frosting on the cake. That's what kept us coming back week after week after week. Do you, know, it's, do you think that's um, applies now? Go ahead. When I started out, I have never worked for money in my life. I quit Fred Bevan because he hurt my feelings about saying something about my dog. Yeah. Dogs have been my life. <clears throat> I quit a job. I, when I quit Fred that one year, I went back to New Jersey where I worked on Atlantic City Airport, making more money. Now, I was making sometimes $500 a week, and I was making $50 a month down there. Well, Fred come up to the English Setter Club and called me and asked me if I'd come up there. And I, you run this dog up there that I'd raised and had the same breeding as Safari. <clears throat> Heck of a bird dog, qualified for national when he was a derby. And because of that dog, I quit that job, went back to Canada. Tell <laughs> you about that trip. I probably took the last Western train ride that was ever in, in existence. I flew in to Rapid City, I think that's or Aberdeen, South Dakota, and took a train to Minot. Well, I'm sitting there and I've done met Sherry and I wasn't too sure, but then I wanted to finish this trip. I had an old suitcase. I seen these fancy trains up there and I'd asked, is that my train? No, your train's late. Another one left, come in, is that my train? No, your train's late, hadn't got here yet. Directly a train come in, I looked out there, it's like it's something you see in the movies. Great big old windows, the side doors is open. That's your train. Got on that train, it had a stove in the middle, and the seats faced each other, wooden seats. You looked at each other, but I didn't see nobody. I was the only one on the train. It had the milk cans. My suitcase was there. And we left out there, and that old train just get to moving, barely moving, and it would stop. Get to going again. Stop again, just a little bit. I look out the window and they was visiting and the lady there at the train stop had a pie and give it to the conductor. And they visited a while and put the milk cans on there. We went on. It took me four hours from Aberdeen, South Dakota. Uh, not, it wasn't mine. Not. It's a little town just across the border. And... Uh, I can't think of it right now. But Frederick was to meet me there. So I finally asked the conductor, how come we couldn't go any faster? How fast he'd go? And he said, yes, sir. He said, if we go over 35, it'll jump off the tracks. So we went 35 miles an hour. He come back there. He says, I guess I have to punch your ticket. He said, this is a ride that you can tell your grandkids about. Not having a cab camera or something other that was something but it was one of the movie trains yeah. that i took that last ride or that ride to canada up there but when i got to field trial all i ever wanted 
out of my dogs. It may happen to him give me a good performance. That's what I worked for was that dog and that performance. And I did get upset a lot of times when that dog was really, when you knew it was injustice. And injustice does happen out there. And for whatever reason, won't get into that, but it's a, it's a part of it. And that's the hardest thing. We are like the coach. What was the coach for the New York Yankees for so many years? You got in a lot of trouble. But you're fighting for your team. And when somebody does something that takes away from your team, I had to give every nickel, every one back to give that dog what I felt he deserved, you know, him back there. And it's that love of animals, it's that love of them that I got on the horse and rode the National Amateur and, and Judge did in the National Open, never missed a brace. And, and you just go, and I can tell you what every one of them dogs did because I was watching them did like it. It's the love of a dog and what you're doing out there that, that keeps you going. Well, you know, it. I was a little different circumstances. I was an amateur, and 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 uh, I I I had to, uh, at least I thought I did. I had to break some dogs that uh, that uh, I didn't like and I didn't want to keep, just uh, so I could pay the expenses. Right. And and uh, I I sold a lot of those dogs to the boys down south to hunt on the plantations mm -hmm. and I sold some of the dogs but I, I always thought I had one better if I sold one of the a, a competitive dog. You never went back. You never did semen or anything. You never pulled semen. Okay. I didn't think so. Well, we was on the two I'm working private with one man. Yeah. I have to keep yeah. it down there. Yeah. And that, that's what it was. We all, you know, the circumstances dictate how you live and what you do and what, sure. what you do. I didn't have to worry about money because Mr. Smith furnished my truck, furnished everything I needed. I had, all I had to do was buy food and clothes. Okay. And when I went to work for him, it was $150 a month, but I could save money. Right. You know, because I didn't have no expenses. Right. Okay. I uh, I appreciate that, and I hope that message is received. I, it seems to me like nowadays us guys just work for something a little, a little different, you know, um, you guys had a lot of heart working. So that's all. Um, I could sit here and ask y'all 50 million different more questions, but uh, Mr. Miller, Mr. Ray, and Mr. Moore, if you know, if y'all don't have anything else, you know, I can wrap it on up. I just appreciate you sitting down with me. Yeah, we enjoy it. I definitely and and you know, I, uh, I feel like all we can do now is pass it on. Yeah, yeah. Well, and hope hope, hope it sticks. Yeah. Somewhere that you can help somebody. Yeah coming along because we didn't have it yeah well it stuck with me i can tell you that now let me let me end by saying that uh one of the favorite pictures that i have is the facebook saver on my computer and it's mr farrell miller fixing some pork out of a crock pot in the serving line at Hell Creek, Mississippi. Yeah. And he had that typical, look at him right now, <laughs> that typical Farrell Miller twinkle in the eye yeah. and smile on the face, showing those that upper teeth. Yeah. That's typical Farrell Miller, the twinkle in the eye and that little smile that goes from <laughs> here to here. That's on my face saver on my computer and that's one of my favorite pictures. Okay, I'm gonna try to remember that then. 
You did a lot of that winning too. <laughs> Never enough. That's well, cool. you heard this morning. I've won six hundred and one now, and that pales in comparison. He won way more than that in just championships. Man, I uh, it's it's the white dogs. So I'm convinced I'm getting me one now. Good. I'm convinced. I'm Good. convinced. All right, gentlemen. Well, I'm gonna wrap it. Again, guys, I'd like to thank all my sponsors and affiliates from Onyx Maps, our title sponsor, to Yukonuba Sporting Dog, to Garmin Fish and Hunt, um, for, to Dakota 283 Kennels, to Lion Country Supply, and everybody else that has been supporting the podcast since day one. Thanks again to Project Upland and the Northwoods Collective.